the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Welcome into the program, and uh, thank you for welcoming us into your car, your home, or uh, your transistor radio, your mobile device, whatever it might be, however you might be listening. Thank you so much for allowing the privilege to us to spend some time with you. We've got a couple of solid hours tonight, lots of important things to talk about. A little bit later on, we're going to be dying. Diving into the latest unwillingness by the United States Supreme Court to act in a critical arena. Constitutional lawyer Brad Dacus joins us with the details. But let me begin by a bit of a walk down history lane. Late March of 2020 through today, reported number of cases related to SARS-CoV-19 are more than 702 million people across the globe. Of those, sadly and tragically, due to slow government action or reaction or just complete incompetency, more than 6,974,000 people that were with us in March of 2020 are no longer here. Now, yes, there may be companion illnesses and diseases that were contributory toward their loss of life, but ultimately there is a strong tie into loss of life due to COVID-19. We have long debated the origins of COVID, and there seems to be a growing body of evidence to suggest that whether it made a jump from animal to human and then found its way into a lab and got out or made a jump in a wet market in Wuhan, China, nevertheless, we know that it happened. And we know that there is enough to suggest that something more was going on in that lab in Wuhan. Now a new report to suggest that if you thought the events of March of 2020 and following was enough to scare scientists into being more deliberate, more cautious, well, you'd be sorely, sorely disappointed to find out, in fact, some of the experimentation into these types of deadly viruses and even attempting to strengthen them to um, to study aspects of how these viruses will grow and mutate appear to be continuing to this very day. So we've invited our dear friend Wesley Smith to join us. Wes Smith is a senior, a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. He is a best-selling author for many, many years and um, is an expert in the arena of bioethics. And, and Wes, it's always a delight to have you with us. We've talked a lot in the past about topics relating to things like bioethics and cloning and DNA use and mani- uh, manipulation of the human genome. But, I, you know, as much as many 
any of those topics and areas of scientific discovery and experimentation raise debates and causes for concern. Um, I don't know that we've been seen anything more recently on the radar screen any more significant than the impact of COVID. And now to understand that a lot of this experimentation in labs in China, specifically in the in the Wuhan region, apparently have continued to this very day and to a certain degree, even doing research in Beijing, looking at types of diseases shared between or making the jump between animals and humans that are even more frightening, more dangerous than COVID. Yeah, you know, China is the country where ethics and research and medical ethics go to die. Uh, it's uh, pretty much an anything-goes uh, society over there, so long as the government, which of course is a tyranny, approves. And uh, the problem is, uh, biotech, and this is a larger problem than just China, biotech has developed prowess that I think is even more powerful than the splitting of the atom. And unlike the splitting of the atom, there appears to be no concerted effort to uh, create uh, enforceable regulations and laws to govern this research. After, uh, If you watched the movie Oppenheimer, which I thought was a really terrific show, um, one of the things that came out in that is that, you know, the scientist, uh, Dr. Oppenheimer, realized the power of what he had helped create and thought there should be international controls. We, As a consequence, uh, partially of his advocacy, and of course others seeing the wisdom of that approach, there has been non-proliferation treaties and other kinds of uh, limitations that have, if not totally uh, preventing other countries from getting the atomic bomb, certainly have limited it and have made for a safer world. And of course, we also have regulations concerning the peaceful use of the atom uh, for, to generate electricity and other purposes. We don't see that same kind of caution and uh, humility in the biotech sphere. Um, I have been writing for years now. Um, throughout um, Obama's administration, into the Trump administration, and now with the Biden administration, to, to for the United States to take the lead in trying to create enforceable rules of the road for biotech, because biotech can lead to some tremendous benefits, and as you mentioned, awful detriments. And it's the sound of crickets. And having an anything-goes approach will lead to the lowest common ethical denominator. Well, and you know, we, we've seen historically certainly the danger of man's meddling. Uh, World War One, of course, the concern then was chemical weapons. World War Two, of course, ultimately leading to uh, nuclear weapons. And I, I would suspect, and, and perhaps you can bear this out from your perspective, that um, there's a, probably a pretty good chance that the next time we roll into a global war, that there will be a greater likelihood of it becoming bioweapons. I mean, let's face it, you go into a nation, you destroy it by dropping bombs on them. Uh, not only you've ravaged the population, you've also ravaged the infrastructure. So if to the victor go the spoils, there aren't much spoils left over, particularly if you're dropping nuclear weapons. However, if you drop bioweapons, you, you can basically clear everybody out and in short time um, enjoy the benefits of your weapons of warfare and uh, all of the spoils without having laid 
waste the entire infrastructure of a nation. So I wonder if this is potentially the the next new horizon that could completely, um, how should we say, renegotiate the terms of engagement when it comes to to warfare. Yeah, bioweapons are already illegal, I believe, but uh, the fact is that we don't have any real enforcement going on that I can see. Uh, You know, after the fact, you could say, okay, let's take the uh, wrongdoers and land them in The Hague. That won't do much good. Um, To prevent the creation of very potent bioweapons, you need to have proper regulation over biotech. Uh, Just give you an example, CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R is a genetic gene editing technique. Very uh, simple to do. Uh, The the person who created it uh, won a Nobel Prize. There are no constraints on on CRISPR. CRISPR can genetically alter any cell and any organism that exists. So, we already have had one effective treatment using CRISPR on sickle cell anemia, where a lot of the pain that's caused by the blood problems that people with sickle cell anemia have uh, in in a study actually had tremendous benefit of reduced pain using the CRISPR technique. That's great. On the other hand, as you said, um, if you wanted to take a bat virus, for example, or a bird virus, or a pig virus, or a bacteria, a bacterium, and alter it to become more deadly and more uh, easily spread among humans, you can do that too. So we kind of are in a situation where we're depending on the good will of scientists but also the goodwill of potential terrorists, and that's a pretty bad bet. Yeah, and I want to talk about more along those lines when we come back. If you've just joined us today, we're visiting today with Wesley Smith, Senior Fellow with the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. He is probably one of the, the leading thinkers um, in the arena of bioethics and raising critical questions that, that really potentially have the impact to, to, uh, to reach and impact the, the lives of all of of us. I mean, look at what happened with COVID. Now imagine experimentation continuing into even more deadly viruses that not only have the ability to, to mutate more rapidly and, and, and therefore uh, frustrate attempts at trying to create uh, inoculations and things of that sort, um, but to, to set up a scenario where there is sort of self-contained, self-driven uh, virulence enhancing mutation in storage, meaning on their own, they will continue to grow and to mutate, and all of a sudden, if potentially released to the general public, public, uh, it could be out of control day number one. And when you think about the cast of characters involved in some of this experimentation, it should give us all a reason to not sleep tonight. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation with Wesley J. Smith as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back to our conversation today with Wesley J. Smith, Senior Fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. We're talking about a new report out of China indicating that if you thought COVID was it, they learned their lesson, no mas. Well, continually, apparently, research into 
various types of virus strains, um, whether they're taking a virus from an animal and directly transferring it to humans or they're simply culturing cells in a lab and then a release is happening by accident or on purpose uh, raises some pretty significant concerns. And I think, Wes, one of the concerns that certainly captures my attention is the fact that so many of these labs, if you dig deep enough, have one connection or another either back to the government in Beijing or, as just as frighteningly, to the People's Republic of China military, which tells me that they may in fact be doing research that while on the per- on the surface may be masqueraded as we're trying to discover uh, you know how to identify these types of uh, of uh, illnesses and respiratory diseases such as covid a lot sooner how to develop inoculations against them that will be not only quicker but more effective etc cetera, etc cetera. but if the chinese military is sort of privately in the background running things controlling things paying for things that that tells me that at the core, there's probably greater interest in the military uses of this research than there is in humanitarian uses. What do you think? I, I would probably agree with you. China is not known for its humanitarian, and, and we're talking about the CCP, uh, the People's Republic of China and the Chinese Communist Party. We're not talking about the Chinese people. Um, but China is perhaps the most efficient and effective tyranny in the history of the world because of their uh, biotech and their other forms of tech uh, capacities. Nothing happens uh, of a major uh, import uh, in China without the government knowing about it. Uh, And let me give you a classic example. Uh, We were talking about uh, genetic engineering. Uh, Three babies were born a few years ago in China that had been genetically engineered. uh, the scientist who did it uh, was in, from a Chinese lab, and he announced it at a big biotech meeting in Hong Kong. This is before Hong Kong was suppressed by the uh, Communist Party. And uh, instead of uh, people cheering and saying, oh, you genetically engineered three babies, uh, and this was called germline genetic engineering, by the way. So the changes he made, he, he knocked out a gene that might have an impact on catching the HIV virus but there are already ways and and the excuse was well the father has HIV but there are already ways to prevent uh, fathers with HIV from passing that uh, virus on to their progeny at the same time it turned out that the uh, change may have made it easier for these babies to get the flu but because these the the CRISPR technology was done while the uh, babies were in the early embryonic stage, those changes will pass down the generations uh, if they have children. That's called germline genetic engineering. The um, the kind of uh, genetic engineering that I mentioned in the last segment on, on sickle cell anemia was not that way. That was ethical. That was somatic cell genetic engineering in an adult person. And the only uh, persons whose uh, uh, cells would be changed in, in that experiment was the patient. So that would not go down the generations in the event there was a problem and so forth. Well, when the there was this outcry, China pretended they didn't know anything about it. And they put this uh, scientist in jail, in jail for a couple of years. But guess what? He's out and they've given him his own lab. So, so much for being a pariah, right? 
He was uh, sacrificed because China wanted to save face, but they knew what was going on. They know all of the stuff that is going on. This is a country, uh, not a country, but a political party that is committing genocide against the Uyghurs uh, in Western China. If they're willing to slaughter Uyghurs, enslave Uyghurs, uh, put mandatory abortions on Uyghur women, use rape as a as a, a technique of of oppression, uh, then they're not going to be afraid to use these uh, experiments, and particularly uh, research military capacities. That should uh, trouble all of us. And you mentioned in the previous segment about the the need for not only global controls, but a system of checks and balances. And certainly we have attempted to, to do that with varying degrees of success, perhaps North Korea, notwithstanding in the issue of controlling nuclear proliferation post-September um, of 1945. Uh, why do you think there's been, even post-COVID, such a failure for the internet? international community to come together and recognize how dangerous this kind of experimentation can be, particularly in the light of the evidence of the impact of COVID? You know, that's an excellent question. And uh, I'm not sure of the answer, but I, I, have a, I have a thought. You remember the embryonic stem cell controversy? I know I appeared on your show many times. Absolutely. During that uh, controversy where George Bush put some minimal... Uh, 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 federal funding restrictions on the use of embryonic stem cells. And there was this huge brouhaha um, uh, where Bush was supposedly imposing his religion to keep people from getting out of wheelchairs and so forth. Uh, it turned out, of course, in that argumentation, that the people who opposed embryonic stem cell research for ethical reasons but supported adult stem cell research had the better argument and had the more scientifically valid argument because uh, adult stem cells are now in use in uh, treating patients. Uh, there's something called induced pluripotent stem cells where you can create stem cells from skin cells and those are used in uh, 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 testing like on cell lines and so forth. So we found ways around the embryonic ethical ways around the embryonic stem cell uh, issue but the fight was so intense that i have noticed that since uh the end of the bush administration and of course part of the fight was to hurt the bush administration and the media uh there isn't a lot of reporting on this stuff except when something happens uh the media does not press the scientists to engage in proper dialogue to have an um uh, enforceable guidelines. Nobody, uh, by the way, in the media ask any politicians that I'm aware of, uh, you know, what do you think about this? What kind of regulation should we have? We're entering a presidential prime, a presidential election year, and George, Joe Biden hasn't been asked. Donald Trump hasn't been asked. Donald Trump wasn't asked in the four years he was president. Donald Trump didn't mention uh, biotechnology, as far as I know, in the four years he was president. And I, I wrote about that many times at National Review, urging him to use his megaphone to start thinking about these issues. But nothing. You haven't heard uh, RFK Jr. ask about this. You haven't heard Nikki Haley ask about this. There are senatorial contests going on around the country and, and primaries. The media never ask it. It's never asked in town halls because the media doesn't cover it and people aren't thinking about it. But it's almost like, as you mentioned earlier, to use a metaphor, Pearl Harbor is on its way 
you know, the planes have taken off of the of the aircraft carriers heading for Hawaii, and people are just uh, sitting on the beach drinking Mai Tais. Well, and what's ironic about the point that you've just made, and, and uh, just right on the, the, the nose, Wes, and that is that, you know, as much as we hear all the dialogue, for example, about uh, allegations of global warming, the impact on culture, and uh, impact on society, rather, and that over periods of time, the slow warming and the inability of the Earth to be able to... You know, uh, the atmosphere to protect humankind, et cetera, et cetera. How many people over a long stretch of time are going to die as a direct or indirect result of global warming? And yet you want to talk about evidence. Almost seven million succumbed to covid in the course of barely three years and coming up on four soon. And yet that doesn't put the issue of bioethics as it relates to this kind of research and what's going on with strains of viruses in labs front and center. I mean, I just find it unfathomable that we can devote so much time to the issue of global warming. And yet this topic, this topic barely make the radar screen. Greg, I'm going to steal that. That's a very good point that I hadn't considered. Uh, It's very true. Um, We hear from the Biden administration, without getting into the facts or or demerits of global warming, that this is the greatest potential catastrophe we face as as human beings. Clearly, um, the the potential for biotechnology to create a a deadly virus, even you know, ten times worse than COVID was, or worse than smallpox, is a much greater threat than uh, climate change. Uh, and I think that's an extremely good point. And if the media and the powers that be, the international community, the uh, uh, you know the uh, economic forum, the World Economic Forum, and the Great Reset, and all that stuff, focus their attention on the threat of biotechnology and also the benefits because there's tremendous benefits to be had as well i think we'd be in a different world but instead you know it's all politics all the time and instead of having any kind of rational understanding of where the real threat, especially the the quicker potential threat is, and that's certainly with biotech. Well, exactly right. I mean, you talk about the impact of global warming. Let, 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 let's grant the 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 summation uh, that that it's taking place, and that by so many degrees Celsius over so many years, the temperature of the Earth is is increasing. It's going to make the the the, the planet uh, far less friendly toward. Uh, human habitation and impact on on being able to uh, you know uh, maintain a supply chain of food and things of that sort okay well and good let's grant that but you're talking about things like for example this research that has been done into the uh, uh, pangolins that uh, has already shown that there has been not only the ability for a mutation but then after they have done some research into mice find that the, the the more recent variant not only impacts the respiratory system, but now they're finding that once uh, mice that are involved in the experiment have undergone autopsy, uh, they have found, quote, significant amounts of the virus in the rodents' brains, lungs, 
eyes and windpipes, which means it ravages the entire body. So something like this were to get out. We're not talking about the impact of what might happen on the planet in the next 50 to 100 years. We're talking about what might happen in the next 50 to 100 days. Yeah, you know, with global warming or climate change, assuming it's happening uh, as even as badly as they claim, there are many years to adapt. There's technology that you can create to adapt uh, and so forth. As you pointed out, if one of these uh, uh, pathogens gets out, as COVID did, you might end up with a lot of dead people in a very quick time, and there's no way you can adjust and adapt that quickly. I mean, the uh, when you think about the, the vaccination um, uh, project Warp Speed, Operation Warp Speed that President Trump impo- uh, instituted, without getting into the whether one likes the vaccination or doesn't, the vaccine, that was took a year. And that took a year. It was that quick because of a lot of previous research into this uh, form of, of creating uh, vaccinations uh, uh, in terms of um, the technique. <laughs> even even that, a year, you wouldn't have a year if this kind of thing, as badly as those poor mice were uh, infected, ever broke out and, and spread among human populations. Well, and, and Wes, the other thing that I think we ought to find extremely unsettling, and that is the notion that, again, if we, we grant uh, to those that suggest we are undergoing a significant uh, impact of the climate change, global warming, et cetera, et cetera, all right, well, then on a large grand scale, there are things that all of us can do to help reduce the impact, reduce our, our so-called uh, you know CO2 footprint, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so this is going to be a global effort. But you know what's unsettling in my mind? The fact that there's just a handful of people in Beijing that could unleash a new, more dangerous version of SARS-CoV-2 on us. And you have no control or say-so or participation in, in reducing the risk or the hazard whatsoever. You get some guy in Beijing that tells the scientists in Wuhan, okay, open the doors and let her loose. And a handful of people can potentially impact the population of the entire globe. Now, that's frightening. We'll take a time. I'll come back to more of our discussion. Wes Smith with us today, senior fellow at the Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism. Information available on the web at discovery.org. That's discovery.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Part of the justification or the arguments being put forward in favor of these sorts of experiments and studies it goes to the heart of the notion of scientists wanting to better understand uh, the way viruses mutate and what direction they mutate, how quickly, how strong they get as they mutate, how resistive to antibiotics do they become uh, in the so-called uh, you know uh, virulence-enhancing mutation uh, stage. Uh, all of this goes, though, to the heart of an observation made by by a retired professor at Stanford University who recently commented on the topic on social media, and I'm quoting Dr. Galinsky here, this madness must be stopped before it's too late, close quote. And I think we would certainly agree with that notion. So the big question, I guess, uh, Wes Smith, is how do we go about getting greater attention by 
political candidates by Washington, D.C., by our representatives, for them to understand the kind of risk we are all facing, not only as Americans, but as the global community, if this kind of experimentation, particularly being led by people that we have a proven track record that they can't be trusted, uh, what do do we do to get this on the radar screen to get it stopped? I can't think of anything unless people decided to really engage it. And what I'm finding uh, in terms of of that is there's a lot of uh, passivity, perhaps it's uh, resignation, that or people think, well, I can't understand this because I'm not a scientist. You don't have to understand the technique. Uh, which, you know, which is very arcane and, and very, uh, you have to have a lot of education to do it, to understand what it is. And uh, I think all of us have a duty and obligation to start asking our officials to talk, to write letters to the editor, to talk to our friends, to try to generate some kind of um, a, uh, uh, let's say, a, a, a movement, for want of a better term, that insists that this be taken seriously and not relying on what the scientists want, which is voluntary guidelines. Voluntary guidelines are meant to be broken. They're as good as the paper the paper they're written on because the only punishment of against a voluntary guideline is the uh, disdain of peers, which can only take you so far, or perhaps some limitation on public funding. But if you get a very wealthy billionaire... Uh, wealthy billionaire is oxymoron. I mean, is redundant. But yeah, if you get a billionaire who wants to push this investigation without government uh, money, uh, there's, right now there's very little that can be done to stop it. And you know, if you look at some of the um, the top ten list of global threats, you know, certainly there is the the um, geopolitical arena. I would include in that people like Kim Jong Un, uh, Putin. Certainly, the ongoing current war in the Middle East. Then you have the arena of climate change that we discussed a few moments ago. Most of the time, what seems to be capturing the most headlines these days seems to be artificial intelligence and the impact on information and communication and relationships and, and, and all of that. But I have to wonder, from your perspective, as you take a look at the, the broader bioethical questions that we have been discussing today, um, if we added the fourth on that major list um, as uh, bioweapons or, or uh, bio concerns, which of the four would you think to be more pressing? <laughs> I, I know that's a, that's a setup question. <laughs> yeah, certainly the latter. And when you consider how far scientists have come uh, in in researching these issues without AI, imagine with the the uh, exponential power of AI, the ability to uh, manipulate any life form, any cell. Uh, in ways both good and bad. I mean, in in addition to the dangers you're talking about of disease, there's also the eugenics issue, which is using uh, these technologies to enhance humans and try to create a super race. So there's there's a, a, a lot going on here. The whole transhumanism issue is also wrapped up in all of this. Yeah, we're, we're going to turn the clock back 100 years uh, to once again and, and allow the science of eugenics to rear its own ugly head. Um, the one thing we haven't touched 
on, which I think is a given, and that is the spiritual dynamic. I mean, there's real spiritual warfare that's present certainly in any of these topics, but most assuredly when you talk about the ability of a disease to ravage an entire nation, an entire planet, uh, the way we saw with COVID, the spiritual dynamic behind of all of this ought to be particularly troubling. Well, the Tower of Babel. Uh, I mean, how many times do we have to hear about uh, and read and see in the history of the human race how pride and hubris and the desire to have absolute control leads to catastrophe? Undoubtedly so. And uh, lots for us to be considering and certainly to be praying about and to get engaged with, as Wes Smith suggests, uh, of all the topics that seem to generate a tremendous amount of reaction. We have seen reactions, certainly, to what's going on uh, post-attack of Hamas upon Israel, uh, undoubtedly the issue of Ukraine, uh, perennially in the news, climate change to be sure, more recently, as we just mentioned a moment ago, the impact of AI or artificial intelligence, but every one of us have been either directly or indirectly impacted by COVID in just the last four years. How long before we see the potential ruination of the next generation simply because we were too busy worrying about ourselves and our small little corner of the world instead of having the guts and the ability to think broader and larger and be able to delineate between those threats that are immediate and pressing versus those that are away down the road. Wes Smith, again, Senior Fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. Information available on the web at discovery.org. That's discovery.org. Always an eye-opener. I will admit, Wes, I don't always sleep well after our conversations, but uh, I am in encouraged to know that there are people like you on the front lines that are raising the alarm and uh, raising awareness amongst people of faith that we can get out there and know what to do and how to engage and most importantly how to pray our thanks to west smith again information on the web at discovery.org that's discovery.org 546 from kfax and now back to lifeline with craig roberts Talking about a bit of a brief military history, and anybody who knows their military knows that uh, for the longest time, certainly speaking specifically to the United States military, at one time we were something like the 11th, or I, I think even in the, the later teens in terms of military might going into World War II, our U.S. military was was fairly broken. Um, we had been a military that up until that point had been largely race-based. Then during World War II, when there was such a demand for fighters, the U.S. military began to realize that there were soldiers, Japanese descent, Americans, who could fight as brilliantly and valiantly as any Caucasian soldier, uh, ditto African-Americans, who fought during World War II, won some pretty spectacular battles, I might add. And slowly we began to see a shift. Didn't happen fast, seldom does in the military. But over time, the recognition of the importance of a merit-based advancement system in the United States military became front of center. 
And you would think, good, that's that's good progress. Well, sometimes we take two steps forward and sometimes we take three steps backwards. And I think my first guest tonight is going to suggest uh, that that some of the recent movement going on within the military, and we'll cite an example in the Air Force, would suggest we're about to take some giant steps backwards. Joining me now, Lieutenant Colonel, currently with the Texas State Guard, brilliantly served the United States Army for 21 years, now retired, former member of the U.S. House of Representatives in Florida. Pleased to have join us on the program, Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. And uh, such a delight to have you join us. We miss you in Congress. That was a short stint. How do we get you back in Congress again? <laughs> well, Craig, it's good to be with you. And this, uh, it, it kind of became a short stint when your own party redistricts you out and you're the number one target of the Democrat Party back in 2012. So I got a good taste of voter fraud back then. Uh, we still almost won that re-election race, but we came up short by 0.49%. But, you know, I still continue to stand up and fight for my country, uh, regardless of being in Congress or out of Congress. Well, I, I understand that, and, and I certainly applaud that. I'm, I'm just commenting that uh, yeah. your, your tenure in the, uh, in the United States House of Representatives was noted even by folks clear out here in California in terms of the quality of the caliber that you were working and doing for uh, the Americans, uh, taxpayers and voters, and we appreciate that. Hey, you continue on in in active duty, as I mentioned, though you had retired with um, multiple decorations after a a brilliant 21-year career with the, um, as I mentioned, the United States Army. You're back in saddle again as of 2019. I understand you're now serving in the Texas State Guard there again as a uh, lieutenant Colonel, and so you're you're uniquely qualified, I think, to speak to the issue that I kind of broached at the top of the program tonight, mm-hmm. and this notion that there seems to be this this paradigm shift, and not in a good direction, going on in the United States military. Tell us what's going on. Well, you're absolutely right, and I think I can speak firsthand to that because my father. Uh, United States Army Corporal Herman West Sr. Uh, served in the military, in the Army, a segregated Army, in World War II, and he was the reason why I became an officer. Uh, my older brother was a Marine combat infantryman uh, that was wounded in a place called Quezon during the Vietnam War, so we have a history of service, sacrifice, and commitment, and now my nephew is a lieutenant colonel in the United States Army, and he is commanding an artillery battalion just the same as I did. So when when I think about the Tuskegee Airmen and my godfather, William Sticky Jackson, was a Tuskegee Airman, the 332nd uh, Fighter Squadron. You know, they were requested uh, by bomber uh, pilots and bomber squadrons, not because of the color of their skin, but because of their skill and their ability in the air. They never lost a bomber in, in combat. And I think that that is what we want to get back to, is a merit-based uh, military, a military that is based upon uh, your skills and your capabilities. Ability, a military that's based upon your stand, a standard that is achievable, but you have to push yourself to achieve that standard. Not one where we, you know, talk about equity and talk about equality of outcomes, and we talk about inclusion uh, when we really don't understand that that is degradation on our military readiness. Uh, you look at what is happening now with this cultural Marxism, DEI, and everything that's in our military. You can't tell one group of people that you're bad. You're well always be bad because you're an oppressor and another group of people that you're a victim uh, you're oppressed and then think you're going to have a cohesive fighting force and I tell you that's one of the reasons why in the 50 year history 
of the all-volunteer military, we are now seeing in the last couple of years the inability to make the recruitment and retention goals. And, you know, that is so disquieting, particularly in light of everything going on in the world stage today. And, mm-hmm. and we're looking at, you know, the, the old adage, real and present danger from avowed enemies of ours. Yes, even our number one trading partner, I think, arguably, uh, it sits in that category, speaking specifically about communist China. Then we add to that all with that's been going on in, in Europe in relationship to uh, Russia and on and on the list goes. And, it, and it's interesting that you note, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, that we, we when we made this transition from conscription to all volunteer, um, make no mistake about it, all branches of the military really attracted very quality people who not only loved their country, wanted to serve their country, believed that they had something to contribute. Uh, There's oftentimes this misnomer that, well, this is sort of the last resort. If you're a loser and you you can't succeed in anything else, you can't pass an entrance exam uh, to go to a university, then, you know, join the military. Nonsense. Uh, Most of these men and women are highly intelligent, highly decorated, and have served this uh, nation uh, with tremendous degrees of sacrifice, both in times of war and and outside of war. Although, as you know, we've been on a war footing here up until our withdrawal from Afghanistan for for decades. That said, this notion of all of a sudden now we can't attract enough young men and women to the United States military, they've got to be taking note of the fact that there is this paradigm shift to which I referred earlier. That is less about the 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 nature of your character, your your skills, talents, and abilities, but more about the color of your skin. Why are we going backwards all of a sudden? Well, that's just the nature of Marxism. Marxism is about division. Uh, it was created along socioeconomic uh, lines, but the Marxists of today are going to use, and that's why we call it culture Marxism, to divide us upon racial lines. And who would want to join a, a military where that's the focus? Who would want to join a military where you have the current nominee, nominee to be the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Air Force uh, Chief of Staff General Charles Q. Brown, who has said he only wants 46% of white fighter pilots in the Air Force. Why would you restrict, you know, uh, to a certain number or quota, you know, what color fighter pilots you want in the in the Air Force? So when you hear these things or when you know what happened in Afghanistan, and I don't know how many of your listeners saw the, uh, the hearing and the testimony of those Gold Star families who lost their loved ones on that fateful day at Harmony Karzai International Airport, a place I know very well. I spent two and a half years in Afghanistan. And to hear their their stories and to hear how they were lied to and hear how they are disrespected and dismissed, or the fact that we know that in the Army, uh, soldiers are being told to go on food stamps to provide for their families. And there was a story that just came out today, uh, Fort Hood, Texas, now Fort Cavazos, that was my last duty assignment, where uh, single soldiers that live on the on the installation, uh, they are, you know, suffering because they don't have enough food service operations open. You know, we used to call them the mess halls. They don't have enough dining facilities open to take care of the soldiers. So why would you want to join an organization that is more so worried about, uh, you know, murdering unborn babies in the womb or more so worried about gender transition surgeries than just the basics of making sure that if you're a single soldier in the barracks, you got a place to go eat. Uh, so those are 
just a cacophony of issues that are facing uh, these young people. And also understand, Craig, that in the age group of 18 to 26 or 27, less than 30 percent of the young people in that age group are qualified to join the military. So this is a highly competent military, and we're we're just not training people, and we're not caring for people uh, to the point where they want to be a part of it. And we're making it more and more difficult for the best and, and best and brightest to to succeed. And and why would we ever mm-hmm. do that? I mean, put that in context for those of us that are yes. old enough to remember uh, between the the Afghan War, the Kuwait War, mm-hmm. going back prior to that, well, be prior to that, uh, Vietnam, you might even be old enough eavesdropping on this conversation tonight to remember uh, places like Korea. Why would the military not first and foremost say, we want the sharpest, the best, the brightest, the smartest to be in all of those positions of responsibility and authority as opposed to saying, well, we didn't hit our quota today. Do we really want a quota-based military? And I know some are going to say, well, Lieutenant Colonel West, you and Craig, you know, you you guys are, are beating up on the Air Force because he, after all, uh, was in the Army. And longtime listeners to the program know that both my grandfather served um, in the United States Navy during World War II. So you guys are just biased against the Air Force. No, not at all. Put this <laughs> no. in context. Is this sure. the kind of military that you want standing in the gap between you and an enemy? Let's talk about this. We're going to take a time out, come back to more of our conversation. With us today, we are honored to have Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, currently serving in the United States Texas State Guard and uh, served faithfully with uh, multiple decorations for uh, more than 21 years in uh, the United States Army. And we're talking about the dangers of a integrated military, but not in the way that you're thinking. Bizarre. We'll come back with more details and why this is so risky to the safety and security of the United States as our conversation with Lieutenant Colonel Alan West continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 